approach God's word, wanting to understand it, not just in isolation, but in the, the broader context of God's historic redemptive narrative. We preach through a, a book of the Bible and we come back and we pick up where we left off from the week before and we dig deep so that we can understand rightly who God is and live our lives in light of that truth. Currently, as a congregation, we're going through the letter of, of James as a general epistle. And we're examining what it is that God has to say to us as a group of believers here. So as we begin, we're going to do a bit of a recap. And we're going to read together from verse 1 through verse 12. The thrust of our focus this morning will be looking at verses 9 through 12, but it's good to recap what we've learned thus far. Because we have the privilege of being together in the, in the same room, and we have the privilege of owning God's word and having it in our hands, I'm going to ask you to, to stand in reverence for God's word. And we're going to read this through verse 12. This is the word, the eternal word of God. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. Father God, we approach your word with humility and with reverence, knowing that it is your, your eternal word and that we as finite beings need your help to understand it, to discern it, to explore its depths and then apply it rightly to our lives. We ask, Lord God, that you would guide us in this time of, of worship through your word this morning and that you would prepare our hearts to understand. In Jesus' precious name, Amen. You may be seated. By means of recap, we move through this letter and we've understood that the trying of our faith happens during times of trial. Ultimately, what is being tested when we as followers of Jesus Christ go through trials is the assurance of our faith, our faith rightly placed in Jesus Christ. We may have written down the fact that we face life with a confident assurance in the permanence of God's promises. 
we also have come to understand that in order to live a life of obedience in the midst of those trials, we must properly act with wisdom. Wisdom not of ourselves, wisdom not of the world around us, but wisdom that comes divinely through God. We understand that we have the mind of Christ. And then when we lack wisdom, we must ask without doubting, without being double-minded. And that God will give it generously. And we learned from Job 28, 28, a, a cross-reference passage that wisdom is defined as fearing the Lord and secondarily as turning from evil. Those things all together build for us a right understanding that our problems are passing and that God's promises are permanent. So it's in light of this that we continue our text this morning and we pick up at verse nine. We pick up with an understanding that all of these things are passing but there's eternal truth in these words. We'll come to understand that, that we, while we dwell in these tents, these are passing, but our being is eternal. We'll understand that God's word is eternal and that God offers to those who place their faith in Jesus Christ eternal life. So we'll talk about facing trials with eternity in view. Now, I've mentioned that the book of James has a number of, of challenges for people who come to it and, and perhaps don't do their homework. We mentioned early on that this is a, a book about practical divinity. It's about living out the Christian life. But that doesn't mean we get to fast forward doing interpretation. Whenever we put interpretation before application, we end up with problems. In light of that, let me read again for you verses 9 through 11 of James 1. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits." You see, we as human beings, when we draw near to the word of God, we erroneously want to make it about us first. We commented that how appropriate it is as a body of believers going through a hard time that we begin with a text that says, count it all joy, my brothers, when we face trials. But we established early on that we're not looking at this text just because we're in the middle of a trial. When we look at a passage in scripture, we immediately want to try to discern how this applies to us. We look at the text here and we say, look at the lowly brother. Let him boast in his exaltation. Another word for lowly is poor. And right on the heels of that, James says, and the rich in his humiliation. So what do we do naturally? We try to figure out which were those two categories we're in. And then we'll use the text around it to support that argument. If we did that with every biblical text, it'd be quite interesting, right? We read about the Philistines and the Israelites. Who identifies with the Philistines, Right? But we come to the book of James with a very unique lens because we live in one of the most affluent places in the world. We live in a place where the doctrine of the day is that of prosperity gospel. We take texts and we say, if you give, you'll receive. If you sow in faith, you'll reap abundantly. But we need to remember, brothers and sisters, that there's churches around the world that have a very different lens. And when they come to the book of James, they get tripped up on different things. You see, they read that first stanza. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. 
And they appropriate them, that to themselves because they're poor. And in fact, the book of James has been very much mistreated because if we look at the theme of poverty and wealth in the context of these five chapters, we'll come away with a very skewed view. Take, for example, James chapter 2, verse 5. James says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? And skipping ahead to James chapter 5, again we see a reference to the rich. And James says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And skipping ahead just a bit more, verse 4 of chapter 5, it says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which are kept back in fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. So you see, when we understand the context of the book of James, there's something unique happening here. We establish this is about the 12 tribes in dispersion. These are Jewish believers under the hands of persecution. Those who are persecuting are the rich. But that's not to say that we can come to the book of James and we can apply and say, rich equals bad, poor equals good. If we do that, we end up putting together our own theology, laying it on top of scripture and corrupting the gospel. In Latin America, in the 1970s, a Peruvian priest, Catholic priest, came to the book of James, and he assembled for himself a book that spawned an entire theological um, movement called liberation theology. And the idea of liberation theology is that the poor are the ones that Christ has uniquely blessed. In fact, as the manifesto of this particular movement, the words of Jesus were misappropriated. Go with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 4. Remember also, as we study the book of James, that I describe this as a synoptic epistle. This means that it was written by James who walked and talked with Jesus. The, the life and the ministry of Jesus are fresh in the minds of those who would have received this letter. And one of the remarkable things about Christ's ministry is seen in, in Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 16. We see on a Lord's Day, Jesus comes to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What a miraculous thing to see the God-man the, the author of the scroll of Isaiah come in and fulfill his duty as a, as a Jewish male to unroll that scroll and to read it from right to left and to, to quote the words of Isaiah. 
and to say, today in your hearing, this has been fulfilled. But you see, the looking at the words of what Jesus said, if we're not careful, we misinterpret. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. Does that mean that the gospel is only applicable to the poor? No. It also says, he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Are we talking about a prison break here? Are we talking about the three years that Christ sent on, on earth, breaking people out of jail? As I went through the ministry of Christ, I found that he only got one guy literally out of jail. And that was the guy who was set free in his stead. When Pilate said, you want me to set Barabbas free or Jesus? He said, set Barabbas free. The flip side of that is he actually landed John the Baptist in prison. So when we look at this, what are, what are we to understand about what Christ is saying here? He says, recovery of sight to the blind. Didn't he also heal the, the deaf and the lame and raise the dead? You see, Jesus is speaking here to us in an eternal sense, in a spiritual sense, and in a sense of double meaning. We're really good at double meaning in every other aspect of life, but we can't seem to do it with scripture, right? What is Jesus saying here? He came to proclaim the news to those who are spiritually bankrupt, the poor in spirit. Who are the spiritually bankrupt? That'd be all of us, desperately in need of Christ. Who are those who are spiritually in chains? That'd be all of humanity. And who are those that are spiritually blind? All to whom the Son of God has not been revealed. That's what his ministry is all about. And so if we understand that, going back to James 1 verse 9, we ought to dispel a whole lot of that theology. And that same liberation theology, I should mention, as it came up in the 1970s by a Peruvian Catholic priest, was the same time that Marxism was spreading like wildfire. So it just turns out that that whole notion of Jesus came to save the poor and flip the system on its head served a purpose. We must be careful that we interpret before we apply. If we don't, things go sideways quickly. So what do we know about this? Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. This is an interesting statement because it requires us to look at a now and a later. You see, as we go through the trials of this life, we can identify that it's for a period of time. And at the end of that time, we find ourselves understanding our eternal destiny. As we go through the race of life, we understand if we are placed our faith in Jesus Christ, what the outcome is. And for that reason, the person who's poor can say, I am, I am no longer spiritually bankrupt. I have everything in Christ. Everything. And the next statement is the same. Let the rich in his humiliation. Now, we got to be careful with this too, because the way James writes, his Greek is very, is, is very high in its nature, very lofty. And sometimes when we get things translated and where punctuation gets put, we have to examine what the meaning is. So if we look at this, in other places in scripture, we might rightly say that rich equals bad. But is that what we see here? Look what it says. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Now it doesn't say the rich evil person. In fact, in the context of the, the text that we're building on, 
This would appear to be a brother. There's different understandings of this, but if we look in verse 2, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers. And if we go down to verse 16, James says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. So it would appear that this section of text is talking about brothers. Poor brothers and rich brothers. Does, did Christ come only to, to preach the gospel to the poor? No. He came to preach to the spiritually bankrupt. That's rich and that's poor. To demonstrate this, I'd like you to go with me to the book of Mark. It's our first time in, in Mark in this study so far. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We end up spending a lot of time in Matthew. You'll also be getting Luke homework this week if you're ready. Um, Mark gives us an, an account where Christ encounters the rich young ruler. A familiar passage for us. But we see here, on display, starting at verse 17, how the gospel is for the spiritually bankrupt, rich or poor. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. We, we've heard this. We've been taught this. Does it say that a rich person cannot be saved? No, it says it's impossible without God's intervention. Praise God, that intervention saves us, rich, poor, or otherwise. To continue this section, because I want to call out one other really important statement here. It says, Peter began to say, to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Double-minded Peter. There he is again, right? Calling out what he's done. He's given it all to follow Jesus. Does that save Peter? Does leaving his boat on the seashore to, to follow Jesus save him? No. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now and this time Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. See, this is the economy of, of Christ's kingdom on display. Impossible to be saved were it not for the grace of God manifested through Jesus Christ. And then there's, there's obedience walking after him with a promise that Things will be added to you. Remember what we read in the Beatitudes? Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. You'll have a church family. 
You'll have brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers, and you'll also have persecutions, right? That's what we're being reminded of this month. But, but look again at verse 30. And in the age to come, eternal life. Eternal life. That puts all of our trials in perspective. Eternity in perspective. So we go back to James 9 and 10, and we see that the poor exalts because at the end of his race, his hope is in Christ. We see that the rich at the end of his race, his hope is in Christ. That idea of boasting is the assurance that at the end of this time, there's confident hope and trust in Jesus Christ. Look at Jeremiah chapter 9. An incredible passage that explains for us boasting. We think the idea of boasting is bad, right? But the idea that's there is, is exulting with a you or rejoicing. Confident hope. Not in our wealth, not in our wisdom. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Our boast comes because of our right relationship with Jesus Christ. The material status, the wisdom, all of those things that we've been observing, inconsequential relationship with Christ. One other passage worth noting with regards to the idea of the rich and the poor is from Proverbs chapter 30, a familiar text as well, that addresses our, our utter dependence on God, no matter our, our social position. Two things I ask of you, deny them not before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. See, there's room for error on either side. <laughs> there's spiritual bankruptcy without Christ on either side. And so when we look at James 1, 9, and 10, what we recognize is at the end of our days and in the midst of our situation, our refrain ought to be, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. That's our sufficiency. That's our, our sufficient hope placed in Christ. Moving on a bit, James chapter 1 verse 10 says, And the rich in his humiliation, because of like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Now again, we have to be careful when we hear an illustration used in Scripture that we apply it rightly. Brother Sean preached a couple of weeks ago on Psalm chapter 37. And that same analogy of grass that's withering was used in the first verses. And who did that apply to? Do you remember? We don't always give quizzes, right? But it applied to the wicked. It applied to the wicked. And, and so the psalmist says, the evildoer will wither like grass. But again, what we see here in James is we're not talking about that kind of withering of the grass. We're talking about something that has a broader implication. 
See, what James is doing here in this next section is he is calling to mind a text that those who are reading it, those who have heard it, would have already been familiar with. And so it's not in the context of that verse that Sean shared with us that we're going to understand this, but a different one. If I go up to Brother Brega after church and I say to him, God is good, how is he going to respond to me? We, we know this, right? All the time. If I go up to one of you after church today and say, count it all joy, my brothers, how are you going to respond? When you face trials of many kinds. You see, the same thing is true about this particular statement that James is paraphrasing. He says, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. James does a paraphrase. But guess what? Peter does a direct quotation. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1. Within a decade or two of James' writing, so this is a popular expression that would have been known by Jewish believers at the time. If somebody would have said that expression about the grass withering and the flower falling, this is what would have come to mind. And again, eternity is in view with this little verse, with this paraphrase. Look what it says. Starting at verse 23 of 1 Peter 1. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of the grass. So I'm going to stop there for just a second. We're going to continue. But does it say anything specifically about the rich there? What does it say? All flesh. This is a universal statement. Now, now, James is dealing with a particular problem in the church, so he's singling out a particular portion. It would be as if we were contextualizing part of this message for Pacific Hope here in San Diego, California. Does that make it any less applicable elsewhere? No, but he's appropriating part of it, and he's applying it to a piece of, of circumstance that's taking place in his day. But those who have heard the expression would have known that all flesh is like grass. Keep your finger in 1 Peter. We're going to come back to it. Go with me, if you will, to Psalm chapter 39. A precious text where the psalmist reminds us that all of this is passing. Starting at verse 4 of Psalm 39. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days only a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not who, know who will gather. And now, O oh Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions and do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you rebuke a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. See, for the unbeliever, like we've said before, the only hope is that the problems are passing. But it's precisely because everything's passing that we have a problem. We have a limited time to repent 
and respond to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We're reminded that we need to take stock of how many days we have. The song we sang, our fleeting breath passes quickly. In light of that, what's eternal? Still got your finger in First Peter, right? Good. All flesh is like grass. All its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but what's eternal? The word of the Lord remains forever. That's eternal. That is what we can bank our lives on. The word of God can be burned. It can be banished. It can be banned, but it's eternal. And and it's in that that we can live out our, our very faith. It's eternal. Going back to James chapter one, we see there, James paraphrases it differently. And he says, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. He's giving a a metaphor that would have been very understandable for Jewish people who perhaps lived in and around Palestine. Some who have visited there or have lived there might be familiar with the term Socorro. It's like the Santa Ana winds of the Middle East, of Israel. The, The winds would shift suddenly and everything that was green and verdant all at once dried up, fodder for flame, ready for a wildfire overnight. We wake up with those winds here in San Diego, right? The next day you wake up and you're all dried out (laughs) and allergies, right? But that's what's being described here by James. He's saying in an instant, just like when we meet trials along the ways, it'll happen when we least expect it. And who permits that? Go with me to the, uh, the original text that's being paraphrased and quoted here, which is Isaiah chapter 40. I'll read verses six through eight. James paraphrases it. Peter quotes it. God says it. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? That's Isaiah's question to God. God's response, all flesh is grass. All its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. See, it's not just a a phenomenon that happens that the, the sun dries it out. It's the very breath of God. God ordaining these trials. God ordaining our, our first day of life and our last. That's why we face trials with eternity in view is because God measures our steps, counts our days, knows the hairs on our head. And his word, eternal. James chapter one again. says, For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of its its pursuits. James again appropriates that and talks about the rich specifically, but who's going to fade away in the midst of their pursuits? Everybody. All of humanity. And for that reason, we must understand and have an eternal perspective as people who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you turn with me there. The Apostle Paul 
after describing his earthly body as a jar of clay, describes the trials that must be faced during our pilgrimage on earth. Verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 4 says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that are seen, seen, but as things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. See, that ought to be our perspective, believers. We want to talk about practical divinity and how we live out our, our Christian walk. We need to understand that the things that we see, those are passing away. Our physical bodies, as they, they get older and the pains increase, our life, as the complexities mount, our trials, as they come upon us, not just one at a time, but all at once, all that, temporal. God's word, God's permanent promises, eternal. Keep eternity in view. As we look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for those that are seen are transient, and the things that are unseen are eternal. You see, in, in all of that, what we, what we understand is that James is, is talking to this, this church, this group of believers that's struggling, and he's saying, hey, put your trials in perspective. If you lack the appropriate wisdom to live in obedience during these time of trials, ask God. And then he says, all of this social noise that's going on, the gospel is about not social position, but about spiritual position, being made right with God. In light of that, we move on to the, the next portion of our examination today. Verse 12 of James chapter one. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Now this blessing ought to echo just a little bit of our our homework from a couple of weeks ago, right? This is very much a, a paraphrase, a restatement of Christ's Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes. A Beatitude is a pronunciation of blessing, a statement that there ought to be joy and happiness. And the words of Christ are in mind. Ready for your homework for next week? We'll turn there for just a moment to look at it. Matthew's manuscript of Christ's Sermon on the Mount was chapters 5, 6, and 7. Luke provides an account that's a bit more accelerated. It's a bit shorter. Chapter 6 of Luke. If we go to to verse 20 of Luke chapter 6, you'll see that more or less the, the Sermon on the Mount begins between verse 17 and extends through the end of chapter 6, and that's your homework. What I'd like you to do this in this next week is compare, if you will, and make some notes in your study. What's different about Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount and what's in, unique to Luke's account? And one of the things that you will observe easily here today is that there are only four Beatitudes. There's four blessings versus nine that we find in Matthew's account. We also find immediately after the Beatitudes, a series of woes. 
right? What's a woe? <laughs> a woe is not a, it's not a curse. It's not a pronunciation. It's a warning. And I want you to see how the, the blessing and the warning mirror one another. Look at verse 20 and 21 of Luke chapter 6. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then verse, four, verse 24 is the opposite of that, that, the opposing statement. He says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. See, again, this is a, a now and a later perspective. Luke says, blessed are you who are poor. Matthew says, blessed are you who are poor in spirit, right? We're talking about that double meaning again. We're talking about a spiritual poverty. And we're talking about the kingdom of God being given as a promise. Is the kingdom of God fully effectuated right now? No. If it were, we wouldn't have tears. We wouldn't have pain. We wouldn't have death. What we have is a promise. The book of Ephesians talks about how we're sealed with, a, with an inheritance, we know that that salvation is hidden away for us. Not ours yet. But what does Jesus say in those woes to the rich? He says, you've received your consolation now in this life. And he points ahead to eternity with eternity in view. So again, compare these accounts. And as we look at the blessing, the beatitude that James pronounces, he does it in the same sort of spirit where there is a, a blessing that is reserved for a future date. We have to keep that in mind because it says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. This is an idea of a future tense blessing. It's not our, ours now. If we endure a trial well, is there some sort of prize for that? There are some. Let me show you one. They're not eternal. They're for now. Turn with me to James chapter 5. We'll look at verse, verses 10 and 11. A familiar statement, a beatitude. James says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. See that same verbiage. We consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You see, that's the prize now, right? And the, the gracious thing about our God is there's promises for now and there's promises for later. The promise for now is that we get to understand the purpose of the Lord and how he is compassionate and merciful. As we go through trials now, we consider it joy because we see the purposes of God in play. We see his compassion and we see his mercy. Job is used as that precise example. But there's also a future promise. And that we need to understand just a little bit more about the, the, the next statement here in, in James chapter 1, verse 12. It said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. What does this mean? What is the crown of life? The crown of life is something similar to what Paul describes when he talks about running a race with endurance. And remember that the word steadfast that we find here, a synonym is patience and endurance. So we can think of an athlete. We can think of an athlete that runs and receives a crown of life. In Paul's day, in James' day, 
the winner of an athletic event, one who would finish, would be given a, a wreath, perhaps a laurel leaf, but something that was evergreen. So when we think of a crown of life, remove from your heads the, the image of, of crowns and jewels, okay? We're talking about a wreath. We're talking about a garland that would go around the neck of the, the athlete who finished the race. But what James is talking about here is, is not going through a trial and receiving a reward. He's talking about going through the trial of life, this pilgrimage, and getting to the end of it. Pay careful attention here. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. In doing some study, our dear pastor friend, John, leaves us a legacy of solid biblical teaching. And I found a sermon from Revelation chapter 2 that Pastor John had preached a number of years ago. And I'd like you to go to that text with me in Revelation chapter 2. We're going to read from, from verse 8. And as John explained these words, he explained that this is the words of Jesus Christ, the first and the last to the church at Smyrna, a group that had, of all the churches, been one of the ones that perhaps more appropriately, sinfully, but honored Christ in their, their conduct. And pay careful attention to what's said about this crown of life here. And to the angel in the church of Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. <laughs> Consider just for a moment the eternality of that. The first and the last. The text we looked at in 1 John chapter 1, eternal Christ, eternal God made manifest. You could see him. You could touch him. James heard him. This eternal Christ speaks. And he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Look what he says, but you are rich. See how that all ties in? Seeing your poverty, but you're rich. Materially, you're going through intense persecution. Materially, you have nothing. Spiritually, you have amassed treasures in heaven. You have eternity with Christ as your inheritance. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. I'm not ready to tackle the theology of this crown of life and all that it means. There are some who believe that every time you endure a trial, you get some sort of wreath that you get to give to Jesus later. But what our brother John explained in this text is this crown of life is one of a kind. You get one and you don't get it because you endured to the end. <laughs> you get it because he held you fast to the end. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Eternity in view. Going back to James chapter 12, this last statement is one that is incredibly, incredibly important for us. And I want to spend some time on that this morning for, for those who might be prayerfully considering what this experience following Christ is all about. 
for those who might be trying to contemplate what this fleeting life with all of its troubles really means. What does eternity look like? And, and here we see it because we see that the crown of life isn't given to somebody who just shows grit through every trial. Somebody who's really tough and makes it to the end. No. Who gets this crown? Good it says. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The crown is promised to those who love him. It's about the relationship with Christ. That's what earns us the crown. It's not how well we run the race. There's a, an anecdote. I'll share it ca cautiously. We don't want to misapply this. But during our time in Honduras, we learned of a, of a young Honduran athlete that was sent to Canada to compete in the Olympics. And when he got there, he was so enthusiastic about being away from his, his own country that he checked out in the middle of the marathon and, and went out to explore where he was currently at. And he, he didn't finish the race because he was distracted by other things. And at the end of the event, rather than having his country proud, he got deported and sent back. Kind of urban legend, right? But what a word of caution for us as believers because our citizenship isn't here on earth. We've been given a purpose to run with eternity in view. <laughs> we check out in the middle of the race and get distracted by the stuff in the world around us. James is going to talk to us a lot about that. We're going to see that. The prize must be in view. The prize is Jesus Christ. It's because of the relationship with him that we can have a proper perspective on eternity. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us something really important about this human existence. You see, we saw that God's word is eternal. We see that Christ himself is the first and the last, and he's eternal. But what about us? The world says, hey... Tomorrow you'll be pushing up daisies, right? This life is short. Live for the day. But Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says this, And just as is it appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered up once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That salvation is coming to us th for those of us who have hired Christ as our defense attorney. For those of us who have asked Christ to forgive us our sins. 1 John chapter 5 helps us understand this complicated statement that James says, the crown of life has been promised to those who love God. How do we love God? Well, we understand that he loved us first. He came to seek us. We didn't ask for him. We didn't even acknowledge him because remember we were in chains. We were blind. And we were bankrupt. But he came to look for us. He showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, he died for us. To break the curse of sin and death and to give us eternal life. Look at 1 John chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. 
and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Underline that. What is the victory that has overcome the world? What is the victory that allows us to be steadfast to the end? Our faith. Faith in what? Faith in Jesus Christ. That the God-man came in human form, experienced the trials that we've experienced. Experienced the grief that we experienced. And even experienced the wrath of God that is due to us. And he gave himself up for us. Verse 5 of 1 John chapter 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? See, that's a singular statement. There's no other way to have a saving faith. There is no other saving faith. It's Christ alone. Skipping down to verse 11 and 12 of the same chapter. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write you these things to believe that you may believe in the son of God and that you may, you may know, you may have assurance that you have eternal life. You see, all of this that we're understanding from the book of James as we move through is that these trials are testing our faith. If you're here this morning and, and you don't know what that means, that doesn't make sense to you, this is what it means. It means faith singularly in Jesus Christ. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except him who believes in the Son of God. That Jesus is who he said he was. He came, was manifested in human form. That's our assurance. If you don't have that assurance, prayerfully consider all that we're reading. Perfectly consider what it is that the people sitting around you profess with their mouths, profess with their song, ask, seek, find. All this is passing, but the permanence of God's promises, you can stake your very life on and you can stake your eternity on it. Steadfast. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the, the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. The perfect promise maker. The perfect promise keeper. Let's pray and ask the Lord to remind us to face all of this with eternity in view. Father God, we come before you in this Sunday morning we realize that the, the circumstances around us, while heavy, while afflicting us, are light and momentary. We realize that the things around us, the material world is, is seen, and that's transient. But you, Lord God, are eternal. God, you desire to, to put that eternity into us. Your word tells us that you placed eternity in our hearts. It's written there. Father God, I pray that we as a church body would live out our faith with eternity in view. That we would walk in obedience, steadfast in our faith. Father God, we thank you for the sacrifice of your son Jesus who came, being the first and the last. He was made manifest and he gave himself up for us as a ransom. In Jesus' precious name, amen.